0: You're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast, conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Colorado. Welcome to another episode of Degrees of Freedom. This is the first of two parts. This is a two-part episode where we're going to talk about the best practice in teaching and learning awards at the Faculty of Behavioural and Social Sciences. As always, I'm here with Malcolm Davis. Malcolm, hello. Hi, thank you. Um, This time, perhaps you might have uh, awareness of a new participant, and this participant is the the room that we're in. We're in a room at the faculty, the acoustics might be a little bit different, and you might be um, noticing this difference. But more importantly, we're here with two new guests, um, Denise Haidar and Danny Kostans from the Department of Teacher Education and Educational Sciences, respectively. Uh, welcome, both of you. Thank if you, you could introduce yourselves, Denise, first.
1: My name is Denise Haidar. I work at the Teacher Education Department. I have a background in marine ecology. So I'm a biologist and I teach the biology students um, to become secondary uh, education teachers.
2: Yeah, well, my name is Danny Kostons. I teach from the educational sciences part of uh, the academic teacher training program and the Master of Educational Sciences. I have a lot of courses like uh, neuropsychology, reflection in on learning, stuff like that.
3: Mm. Yeah, you already said a bit about your background, but I was wondering if you maybe could say a bit more about it and how you, know, you became interested in teaching in higher education.
1: Okay, yeah, sure. Um, I was doing a PhD in marine ecology at the University of Groningen. And while I was doing that, I was teaching labs uh, to uh, bachelors and master's students. And I discovered that I really enjoyed doing that teaching. Um, So while I was working on my PhD, I was thinking, hmm, maybe teaching is an interesting career path for me. So I first got my PhD. Secondary school teaching degree, so the, we call it in Dutch. We call it the eerste Graads bevoegdheid, and taught biology at the Bergmon College here in town. Then went for a postdoc to California, to the United States. Came back and taught at the International School, and while teaching there, um, an, an, a vacancy opened up here at the teacher education department, and I applied here, um, and that was e- eight years ago, and I started teaching. Um, teaching methodology or we don't really have a good English name for our courses because everything is in Dutch um, and I've been doing that for the past e- eight years in the one-year program um, as a, that's a postmaster program and we also have a two-year program that's actually um, done together with the faculty of uh, science and engineering so I teach one course there as well that's a skills in science communication course um, and most of the courses here at the at the Faculty of S- Social and Behavioral Sciences for the teacher education program. Yeah,
3: and Danny?
2: Um, I started out studying clinical psychology mm. at the v- University of Maastricht. So they had the PGO uh, education there, mm. a little different from what we do here. Um, then I went for my PhD at the Open University in Heerle. And when that was done, I got an... Uh, offer for a position here in Groningen, which was really weird because when uh, once I was eighteen, I, I, I said that I will never go to like Groningen, far too far away. <laughs> and I've been here for like twelve years. Yeah. Um, and as a, when when I started the postdoc here, I was asked, uh, could you also give some lectures, supervise some students? And I just agreed, not, not thinking about it. Uh, but that was my first actual experience with teaching. And it just continued from there on. So I had a couple of courses that I gave for like 12 years uh, and started a couple of new ones like three years ago. So I think the most courses I have been giving for at least three years, but in some cases, almost 12 years.
3: Mm. Yeah, and, w- and would you say, if you reflect on your teaching experiences um, till this point, that there were any particular challenges that you faced um, within those eight years for you, Denise, and the almost 13 years for you, Dani? Um, and if so, like how did you overcome them, if you reflect on it? Mm. You can take <laughs> any example. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, in, in my teaching, there's always this double layer of me teaching my students how to teach their mm, students. Yeah. Um, and that's always interesting because it also combines the, um, the methodology of teaching and the biological content... And they, so as my students already have most of them already have a bachelor's or a master's degree in biology, so they know the content. But it's different from being able to teach the content. So they have to develop their pedagogical content knowledge, um, and that can be very challenging. In particular, because uh, biology is a very broad field, mm. <coughs> and they're all specialized in mostly one one part of, uh, of biology, so they can be. Um, neuroscientists or they they can be marine biologists. So they all have a um, Mm. kind of a lack of knowledge in one field and it's difficult to decide what content to discuss with them in my Mm. lectures and also showing them and teaching them how to apply teaching methodology in their classrooms.
3: Do you ever think it's hard for them because maybe maybe other students haven't or not experts in the area that they're Mm -hmm. experts in so they, they can't really compare, like for example, I might do with my classmates who are studying the exact same thing coming from the same background.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I think it really helps them um, mm. that they are from different um, yeah. fields in biology because they can explain stuff to each other. Mm. Um, and we do a lot of group, group work and active learning um, in the <sighs> classroom. So it's not not lectures where I talk for an hour and they take notes. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it's also always very active, and they, the idea is that they also do assignments at their, um, at their schools, because they, they teach at secondary schools while they're following our program. Yeah. So they immediately apply what they learn in their classrooms and bring it back to our lectures as well, um, which are more like working groups than really lectures. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, that's
3: a good perspective never take it to you danny were there any same question are there were there any or have there been any challenges over the years um that you can identify that you you faced and and how did you overcome them if you did yeah Uh,
2: i think there's there's two two things one i dealt with Mm -hmm. uh, and that was that i wasn't very an outgoing person uh yeah most people wouldn't say that but i I, I think that uh, uh, during my high school period i never had to give a presentation in front of a classroom i ducked out of that i always managed to duck that and and have presentations just with the teacher um and i only had to give my first presentation in front of the classroom uh, in my second year of psychology and while i was presenting my pen broke and there was inked everywhere and and all of a sudden i realized <laughs> who cares i mean come on this is just standing here and, mm. and that's when a switch went 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 that i didn't mind being in front of the classroom that much but I still do Mm. it's still like the very first meeting uh, is always i'm always nervous before the first lecture for a new group Mm. and that's the second thing i always deal with is you never know what you're gonna get because um first off in the bachelor we have uh, regular bachelor students and the academic teacher training program And that second group goes into classrooms in primary education from the third week on. Mm -hmm. So they have real contact with students. So they see what happens in the classroom. They take that with them into our classroom. They give a lot of examples. But students from regular pedagogical sciences, they are much more quiet usually. So that's already a difference. But even then, between years... Um, this year with neuropsychology I had a lot of students asking questions during the lecture coming up to me after the lecture in between the breaks uh, a lot of questions Year before that <laughs> quiet yeah it was it, it was really and then you have to put a lot of energy into the lecture because usually I get energy from students asking questions and then mm. you can react and I have to say oh god we're, we're late again we have to stop for now and next week we will continue but if everybody's quiet I in a lot of energy and i actually get into my office exhausted and I mean, the master students those are different again because we have regular bachelor students coming into the master academic teacher training pr- uh, students coming into the master and a lot of students coming in from schakelprogramma uh, from from sideways yeah. yeah so that might be students from a different uh, bachelor uh, students who've been working in uh, education for a while mm. and they now after 20 years suddenly decided i want to master so we have students who are like 22 years old with no experience real experience in the field versus people who've been in there for 20 25 years and that's every first lecture is like getting to know the group and then depending on that basically planning out the rest of my of the period for that uh, for that lecture for that for that course
3: yeah
0: I really appreciate that both of you and your answers and uh, I really resonate with these answers that uh, one of the the major themes that emerge from them is the fact that most of the challenges are not um, uh, technological or technical or uh, didactic in a sense but they're mostly about your interactions with other human beings and the fact that these are complex situations but also complex individuals and their humanity comes in as well as your own humanity Danny you mentioned the um, that experience of going into a, a classroom possibly uh, with the nervousness of uh, giving a presentation and this release that um, that was experienced through this um, uh, interaction with the, the pen and the reminder that this is normal. We are people teaching other people, all here trying to engage in the activity of um, um, trying to understand a topic better, trying to communicate a topic with each other better.
2: Yeah, although my uh, Brightspace did, Throw a monkey wrench <laughs> in there this year with getting to know all the stuff that's in in there.
0: I've been avoiding mentioning Brightspace, <laughs> our new uh, <laughs> what do we call it? LME, Learning uh, Something uh, Environment. Uh, indeed, we've had this change at the at the university in the last six months, and. It, it, what is it, all of, the, all, of the, all of the experiences that we've had, denial at first and then uh, eventually ac- acceptance and finally on the acceptance level of uh, accepting all of the technical limitations and uh, all of the, the changes in my, in my workflow. But I really wanted to, to touch upon something that Denise said um, that actually both of you mentioned in a way um, the the difference between knowing something and being able to teach this, being able to communicate this, somehow either empathizing with the task of the individual who doesn't know. Uh, Malcolm, I think you mentioned also this, uh, uh, the possibility that having people who know the subject better or not as well being in, um, in, uh, in interaction with this. And Danny, you also mentioned this. Uh, I, I've never considered it in this, in, in this way where... Uh, teaching. Wait, this is a complex sentence. Teaching students who are also themselves engaged in the act of teaching actually changes the interaction itself. Do you find that your students, who are themselves also teachers, uh, are differently empathetic to you as a teacher, um, or to the to the to the act of being in a classroom? I would say they're more demanding. <laughs> more demanding. Well,
2: that's that's a good thing, I would say, right? No, th- I mean they expect the best education that you could get at the university of course but mm. it's uh, they, they sometimes tend to forget that we're usually researchers first and then educators second mm. in in most cases in I, I would say cases. for me it's 50 yeah. 50 nowadays sure. but when i started out uh, i was just a re- full-time researcher and i could talk about the subject but doing that in a very well-constructed didactic way that, that, that took a couple of years to really get that point across and being able to flexibly uh, be flexible when getting questions instead of saying, uh, I don't know, I'll have to look that up, which is something I always avoid.
0: Yeah, do, do you still avoid saying I don't know?
2: Um, no, I, I, I will say I don't know, um, and I'll, I'll get back to you on that, but it's not like I have to look that up.
0: That, that yeah, fair st- yeah, fair enough. And Denise, if the, the actually, again, this is the topic that I wanted to see if we can explore a little bit better, this difference between knowing your subject and being able to teach it well. In higher education, um, th- things are changing perhaps in the last decade or so. We're becoming more professionalised teachers, whatever that means. Um, but it's often been the case that both as an experience that I um, I think individuals have going into teaching Uh, are we unprepared in a in a in a way is there um is this expectation the traditional expectation in higher education is you're an expert in your field therefore you are also good at communicating this and being a good educator this awareness has changed as i said in Mm. the in in recent (laughs) years um how do you experience it as a as a as a, an educator of the last decade let's say
1: well my students the, f- the first question they always ask me when we start the year is whether i've been a secondary school teacher myself mm-hmm. because they won't take te- their teachers at the teacher education department seriously if they're they have not been in the in the field and have not been actively teaching um so that's i think your um, experience and what you teach them have to match um so I, I was educated as a biologist and then as a secondary school teacher, but what I was not trained as a teacher educator. So that was something I had to figure out for myself. Um, and what I did is that I applied the things that I would do in a secondary school classroom in my, in my um, lectures here as well. Um, and that seems to work, uh, I think. Um, so I don't talk for an hour because that's, I wouldn't do that in secondary school either in my bi- biology classes. Um, So we engage in activities, uh, they experience activities as students um, and they practice teaching um, content knowledge to each other. Uh, We analyze teaching materials, um, we uh, talk about the content, so about the biology where they help each other. Um, So we do all these activities that are, I think, authentic and that can be applied in their classrooms as well. Um, but I had to learn for myself how to do this, how to incorporate this in my teaching. Um, and that can be, can be hard. Um, and you have to be very um, self-reflective and critical about your teaching, and you have to talk to your students to see what works and what doesn't work. Um, and they may say that they uh, enjoy something, but have they learned something while they were doing this activity? So having fun doesn't always mean that you're learning. Um, in fact there is research that shows that when students are doing active uh, experiencing active learn uh, active teaching uh, they feel like they didn't learn much well the evidence shows that on the mm-hmm. test they are doing better uh, so that's not always a good proxy for learning whether they're enjoying it so y- you have really have to engage in a conversation with them to find out what they really learned from your teaching and that I think that's an ongoing process and that we as as teachers at, in higher education, we should be researching our um, our practice as well all the time, mm. um, and not just getting li- having a look at the questionnaires that were filled in at the end of the course, uh, where students give you a score on the on a, on a, ra- on a scale, um, and you hope that it's a green box that you get to see, uh, and you read some of the comments and then continue into your, your yeah. next uh, course. I was
3: actually going to ask about how you engage with feedback. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that you said, yeah, we can't just look at the feedback that we get from the, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the course. But like, do you feel you get enough feedback there? Because I, I heard you say um, that oftentimes it might be like, hey, it's, it was fun. But then that's not necessarily indicative of, you know, good education, if you mm-hmm. what is good education. So I was just wondering, because we can talk about different kinds of feedback, the informal type with, that you get from maybe the students who come up to you. How do how do you look at it? Do you feel like you get enough from the students? Do you think you expect more from them? And the feedback that you do get, like how you said some stuff about it already, but if you would say a bit more, what do you how how do you say you look at it? Um,
1: I have I think that as a as an educator, you have to actively um, get feedback from your students. Mm. Uh, So I use things like exit tickets at the end of my classes and ask students to write down what they need for me to be able to complete the assessment, for example. Um, And then here at our faculty, we still use the questionnaires at the end of each course. Um, But at the the, the skills course that I teach at the Faculty of Science and Engineering, we have a different system uh, of evaluating the courses. And I think that is a a very good example of getting in-depth feedback on your teaching. Because they have a student from the program committee go and talk to the students that are in the course. Uh, so the mm. participants at the end of the course, the lecturers are not, not there. Um, and they have this semi-structured interview that they do with the whole group. Um, and we get a written report um, about the, the, the feedback that they, that they offer. Um, and then as teachers, we... Um, we discuss the feedback and think about what we could change about our course to make it even better. Uh, and then we write a reply to the program committee. And that's
3: each course?
1: Yes. Wow. But it's a small program. So it's, it's mm. not like the, the, the large psychology courses that we have here. Mm. So this is 20 students in the, in the course. So it, it's possible to have a conversation with them like that. Mm.
3: And that can maybe be different, Danny, from pedagogical <laughs> sciences, for example, where you have a class of 200 but um, i was wondering about your response uh, w- when it comes to feedback and how you engage with feedback um, uh, in your teaching uh, profession
2: depends well, <coughs> depends a bit on the group um, we have the end evaluations as well um, which i don't put much stock in uh, we have the same thing that you have um, denise with um, uh, the year representatives uh, actually asking like usually about 20 students, uh, depending on the size of the group, um, what they thought about the program, so more like interviews. And I think that I get much more information from that for next year, but that's just formative for the next year. Um, And during lectures, it depends uh, much on the group, and group size. If I have 200 students sitting there, usually 100, by the way, um, Mm -hmm. I have to scan the group and I take breaks during the lecture to see whether or not they're still paying attention Um, and when i see a lot of frowns i have basically try to uh, try to explain things in another way so i have to really read the group Um, which sometimes works which sometimes doesn't sometimes i ask uh, after a lecture like everything clear next week we're going to talk about this But it all all depends on on how the group is reacting, Uh, which of course does mean that I don't see the individual student then, but I kind of get a group feeling. In the master, I have about 20-25 students uh, in the lecture, and then it's much easier uh, one-on-one to ask what they're thinking. But I also think the goal is different. I mean, in the first or uh, second year, I'm way at the beginning of the year. Um, a lot of what we're doing is still explaining the basics of what's, uh, what's out there, the theories that are out there, uh, the basic stuff they need, while the master is much more uh, working on being a prof- an academic professional and being able to discuss all the material you've had thus far in your materials. So it all depends on where they are in the program and the group itself, how I react and how I try to get feedback during the course and feedback after the course.
1: Hmm.
0: You both mentioned that um, the kind of feedback you uh, you make use of um, it, it really depends on the on the questions and the context. Danny, you mentioned that uh, you don't put a lot of stock in the end of course evaluations, presumably because the return rate is very low because the mm-hmm. all kinds of things that are plaguing evaluations in all kinds of settings. Uh, Denise, you also talked about um, that um, different questions are useful for different reasons for example whether somebody feels uh, satisfied or happy about a course or an experience doesn't necessarily reflect whether they've learned much from it and vice versa so what kind of information are you looking for maybe I can ask this differently how would you advise your students to engage with giving feedback to their teachers this is something I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of weeks and um, how do you communicate your own reflections on this feedback back to students? Or do you do you feel like you have opportunities to do this, uh, both in terms of system but also in terms of within your courses?
2: Good question. Mm-hmm.
0: How do you actually, maybe I can make this more concrete. I know very often that when I, I discuss with my own students these two levels of I'm comfortable with something or I'm happy with something or this was pleasant isn't necessarily the same thing as this was good teaching or this was Mm -hmm. valuable learning, let's put it like this. So how do we have these conversations in which we can take both of these? Because it is also very important to me that my students feel comfortable, that they feel happy, that they feel satisfied with an experience. But I don't want to remain on that level. I also want to have the opportunity to say, yes, this article, this book was unpleasant to read, but the journey was important because the end of it came with a lot of uh, rich uh, understanding. How do we have these conversations? I find it challenging uh, very frequently to have this because often they happen at the very end where things kind of drift away for everybody. Um, How do we do this on a regular enough basis? And how do we, in a way, uh, show our students that we are interested in this communication, that we find it valuable, that we make changes, that we um, incorporate these kind of thoughts and reflections in the way that we shape our education? Because I know we do. I know that we all do this.
1: I explain this to my students. Um, I explain to them why I do things the way I am doing them in my lectures and um, I am lucky to have my students for a whole year. So uh, they start in September and then we finish the year together in, uh, in July. So that really helps. So I can explain to them what I am doing and why I make certain changes. So I do value the, um, the course evaluations because they often also have explicit comments by students and I take those into account and explain to them why I make certain changes in my next course uh, based on their evaluations or their feedback. And I explicitly um, invite them to give feedback during the course, after a lecture, um, whenever they want to. And because I work with small groups, um, we get to know each other very well, and the students in the group, but also me as a teacher and the students. So it's, um, it's easy. It's, I don't think it's difficult for them to give feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was wondering how it is for you, Malcolm, to give feedback to your teachers. Do you ever yeah give I've, uninvited feedback or
3: i've done some more progressively because i always found it very intimidating because mm-hmm. i always felt like uh, maybe they've gotten this question already or maybe i'm not informed enough yet bef- before i can ask them the question but nowadays i just try to to do it and that's my own personal journey as well so that's just my preference as well i think um but what i like to do is ask it like after the, co- the, the lecture itself and i do appreciate it when professors um Leave room for that through the the process itself and not just at the end. Right. And I've heard that from a lot of other um, students, uh, classmates as well, that they like when the teacher is already reflective on their practice during the lectures or Mm -hmm. between the lectures. And then they feel like the teacher is more engaged and then they feel more connected to the the course as well. Um, It helps if the course itself is interesting, but um, I think generally that's something I've noticed and something I like. Um, about what I've been seeing more over the years uh, while being here, yeah.
1: So are they actively inviting you to give feedback, written, or is is this part of the...
3: Yeah, some of them, and that's because I'm doing the the Master's in Educational Innovation, and so far I feel like the teachers have been very um, engaged, and that helps, you know, and of course when I was in the Bachelor program, it was a very big room, and it's a little harder maybe to do that, I mean, I think you can still do it, but maybe... The teachers were also a bit different, so I, I, it's hard to tell. But I can say that my experience right now has been that I feel like they've been very engaged, and that helps at least me feel a lot more connected to the teacher, and it feels like less of a step to step to them and ask them a question about something they're doing uh, that we might not agree on as students or, or anything in that area, yeah. Mm.
0: I want to return to... The actual, I suppose, theme of this uh, episode, <laughs> which is oh the, yeah. the awards. Yeah. First of all, by Thanks. saying congratulations to both of you for winning with these awards in your uh, in your respective departments. Um, um, how do you feel about that? Do you feel pride? Do you feel uh, discomfort? Uh, I don't know how you are in your uh, in your relationship to awards.
2: Well, we all love, wouldn't? <laughs> no, it, I, I, for me, it was uh, I even. At one point, I was like, should I accept this? Hmm. Because, uh, and that has nothing to do with the award itself, but it was um, uh, the uh, first exam had only a 50% uh, pass rate. I remember you mentioned that, yeah. And the reset was exactly the same. And I was like, how can I possibly be nominated for something like this if half of my students are failing? Because then I'm not doing my job very well. So the first thing I was like I, i'm really um placing the blame on myself um but then i read what the students had written uh and i was like okay okay so they really enjoyed the courses but then there you have the whole enjoyment part uh is that okay so in the end i was i was happy to be nominated i was happy to get it within uh, pedagogical sciences but it is still a, a thing Uh, again i've been here for 12 years so this was like the third time i was nominated uh, and the the first two times were like the teacher of the year i was like why do we have this nomination system i mean we don't have it like a researcher of the year imagine that we tried to do something like that Uh, i think that within the faculty we would burn that idea down immediately because of all the hype that you would then get
0: don't we have a lot of researcher of the year awards already? And that's the, that's the point of the, of the teaching awards that actually on the, uh, on the equation of what is rewarded and what is um, uh, acknowledged in academia, research is, you know, 90% and education is uh, once in a while remembered. So actually, I think this is an interesting uh, thing to discover or to, to, to uh, engage with, uh, in and of itself, Denise, how do how do you feel about these awards? I have similar ambivalences as, yeah. as Danny. I I don't know how to 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 relate to them most of the time, but all the time I feel like I think they're valuable. I think they're valuable because at least we have occasions like this where we can co- talk about it, and they provide platforms for discussions and education. But how do you see them?
1: Yeah, I have the same ambivalent feeling about them. Um, whenever there's a contest you you also you you feel honored being nominated for an award like this but I also get competitive (laughs) and I don't really (laughs) like that feeling (laughs) I wanted to win and then you Mm. won the award (laughs) and you had no presentation (laughs) and I was so disappointed no not Mm -hmm. at all Um, but then it does give you the feeling that you really have to show something and to show what you're uh, worth and why you were why it was good that you were nominated for an award, and I don't think that that is what I want to feel. I just want to share my um, experience with others and talk about teaching because that's what I enjoy doing. Um, but I also want to talk about the things that are not going well and that I struggle with, and that others may also struggle with. But we al- always talk about our successes, and I think that that is um, that's a pity. I think so. I would like to. Uh, I think it's good that we have more attention to um, to teaching to good teaching and what good teaching is and discuss that with each other but also talk about what we find difficult in our in our daily practice um, yeah so that's same ambivalence feeling I think. I
0: think the ambivalence that we're all expressing part t- isn't so much about the the acknowledgement about good teaching, but it's the competitive aspect Mm -hmm. of this award. So indeed, maybe also for context for listeners that aren't aware of this, this award, this teaching award, which is now called the Best Practice in Teaching and Learning Award, used to be called the Teacher of the Year Award, which was an even more uncomfortable position to be in because this was entirely um, a competitive kind of um, uh, construction Focused on being a best teacher, or um, um, however you might want to conceive this. There are, I guess, advantages and disadvantages to, to both of them. And then slowly there was this switch, partly because of this discomfort towards the competition and because of this discomfort at being, at labeling certain people best or better or whatever teachers than others. The switch became towards. Um, uh, what we call best practice so the actual practice of teaching and showcasing techniques i suppose or pedagogical context or however you want to think about them itself with with limitations i would contend um but i think it's daniel it's also the reaction to the fact that as i said i think there is so much acknowledgement of um success in the research field Um, Whenever you read a newsletter, it's about research grants. It's about how much money those research grants are bringing in. It's about the prestige of um, winning um, um, uh, competitive research um, um, uh, endeavors, let's call them. And indeed, most of our academic success in terms of career is on the shoulders of our work on research. This is changing the rewards and recognition platform, I suppose, that is being proposed in its uh, beginning at the at Dutch universities, is aiming to, to broaden our understanding of what our functions as academics are, and perhaps one could conceive this these kind of awards as being part of this. But I certainly share this discomfort with you. I don't really know how to understand this. I don't like the notion of the award. I don't like the competitive. The thing that I've always disliked about it is this elimination aspect of it rather than this the fact that through these rounds every year we begin by recognizing people within programs and recognizing the work that they do then we go through this process of eliminating people until one or two remain and that just feels strange to me and it seems also like a missed opportunity where we can say that Here are the emergent practices, here are the emergent individuals also, because I would contend, and I'm curious what you think about this, that the individual is also a very important uh, quantity, let's say, in this equation of what good teaching and what good learning is, because I don't know that any of my good practices would work for you, Danny, or for you, Denise, or you, Malcolm, uh, and I don't know whether yours would work for me. Certain would. I love exit tickets. You mentioned those, and I think they work very well. But can we talk about this a little bit? Uh, how the individual interacts with the best practice, and maybe ask you more explicitly to talk to us about what you've been nominated for? I, I, I find it uncomfortable to ask this question. you know, <laughs> what is your best practice, what it is that um, uh, your students appreciated, and how it interacts with you as individuals. Denise, I'll start with you.
1: Yeah, so my best practice, or good practice, was actually a very small thing that I did during one of the working groups that we have, where students made a stop-motion video using Play-Doh. It's this um, clay, colored clay, um, of a process in, uh, in biology, in cells. It's um, meiosis, where um, the m- genetic material is divided over two, uh, two cells. Um, so they created a stop-motion video, um, so that was the practice, and they liked that, um, and it is, it, it's an example of something, an activity that you might do in the classroom with your own students when you teach biology, but it showed them how students experience such a thing, so they're, they're uh, young students at school, and also what you can do as a teacher, so I was showing them, I was modelling how as a teacher you can help your students while they're doing such an activity. Um, and that's uh, apparently they enjoyed that. Um, and did you enjoy that? Did I you? enjoy it very much. <laughs> I think it's a very it's a very fun activity. Um, but it also it, it's a very good activity to practice teacher noticing with my students because they're visualizing a complex process. Um, you can actually see what they're thinking or what they, they try to uh, translate what they're thinking into concrete materials. and you can immediately see the mistake that they make. And the funny thing is that my students that have a master's degree in uh, in biology make the same mistake uh, mistakes that secondary school students make in this um, in visualizing this process. So we talk about the biology content. Um, we talk about how to um, how to help students while they're doing such an activity and their experience being a student and interacting with difficult biological material themselves. So there's these three three aspects that really work very well in this activity, but I also think that it might not be for everyone to do something like that, because you have to be comfortable with using these craft materials. I really like that, but not everybody does, So, um, although I do think that visualizations are important in many many classrooms, and there are many different ways of applying those. You can also have students just make a drawing. but I, I, I do think you have to be comfortable with doing such a thing and you have to have an overview of the whole classroom and know what to look for in their learning as well.
0: Can you give me an idea of the process that you went through in coming up with this exercise? Because indeed, we see the outcome and we think, okay, that's the outcome, I should take the outcome, but I think <coughs> the process is more important for people to figure out what activity fits them in mm-hmm. their context. How did you go through
1: well, I, I knew that this was a successful activity with students in secondary school. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the topic of this lecture was um, visualizing complex processes. And I had a couple of examples of doing that. So I would first show mitosis using striped socks. So I was doing a um, kind of a play with striped socks to show them a process. And so I, I incorporated in this lecture different activities that show different ways of visualizations. Um, And I used examples from my own teaching experience um, because I understand from my students that they like to see how to uh, apply certain things in the classroom. So it's difficult when you read something about a certain activity to translate it in how it would look like. Um, So I try to model many things that I try to teach them. So that was one of my uh, ideas of why I would choose such, such an activity in the classroom instead of just talking about it to actually do it and experience it. Um, Yeah, so I collected a number of activities that I um, put in this lecture and um, yeah, it seemed to work well. Although I don't know whether they actually applied it in their own classrooms. So I do always ask them and then that's where I, that's one of the things that I struggle with in my teaching and that is um, I offer them all these examples and materials and I do go and visit them at their schools and I make them um, do certain certain things that they may at first not be comfortable with, but that they learn to do. But how well they do do this, we don't get a complete view of that. I think. Um, so we,
0: I guess it's also partly their responsibility to to grow through these activities. Yes. Right. It and is, to yeah. reflect on them and to find their own journey and how they develop as teachers and how they relate to these various tasks and mm-hmm. hopefully, ideally, even come up with their own ways of doing this that fits them,
1: yes. their authentic self. And some of them do really well in that, um, huh. yeah, and are very creative and give very, very good lessons in their uh, in their schools, but we make them write these uh, reports um, as assessment. I don't know how it is in your programs, but we often have to grade all these very elaborate reports where students have to describe what they do and link it to theory and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of the year, they, they design a lesson and then I read a report about it and I give feedback and a grade and never nobody ever looks at it. And it feels very... I, I don't feel very satisfied to end the year like that. So I started a pilot last year with an oral examination at the end of the, the year and that is fantastic because the students really apply what they have learned during the year, um, and then they they give a lesson. I try to be there for the lesson, um, and then we have an oral examination about that. Um, They talk about the theory that they use in the the lesson design, um, and they they have to evaluate the lesson and have to show what their students learned and what they learned, and we have a very good conversation about that. And some of them fail the exam. Um, Not everybody passes, um, but they all say that they learned something while doing the exam. And I think that that is really, uh, really nice.
0: Danny, what uh, what have you been nominated for? What is it uh, besides being Danny Costanz? Besides
2: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just it. That's it. No. Um, I think one of the things I have been doing for the uh, last 12 years uh, is actually borrowing something I had... When i was at the university of maastricht one of the teachers had this very interesting way of doing uh, his exams Uh, because we had pko there and that means that you get like a suggested reading for each of the problems i have to go back another step Uh, each week you get like a problem statement like this is going on and then the group has to go into the library or whatever look at literature what what might be going on and the next week you have a debriefing of all the students and what did you find and what might be the solution or the theory behind this problem uh, which also means that not every student read the exact same thing you don't have a textbook you often have a lot of literature and people might find stuff that's not relevant but if everybody finds the same stuff that's probably relevant um, and the teacher's not going to tell you uh, maybe in the first year you get some hints like you missed something, but. And uh, from the second year on, uh, you're not being told whether or not you're finding the right stuff. You'll see that at the exam. But most exams were still like multiple choice or open questions. But there was this one teacher who, who basically said, the exam, the full exam is here you have like 20 terms. You can pick 10. and You have to explain to me what they have to do with each other. And that opened my eyes because up until that moment, I was always sticking to the one subject of the week mm. and figuring that one out, and then the next, and the next, and the next. But we never laid the links between these subjects within a course, let, let alone trying to combine things between courses. So I was like, but that's what you're trying to do. You're not trying to create students who know a lot, uh, if, if you give them a cue, like, and they can repeat what's in the textbook. You want them to ha- make be able to make these links So, besides the multiple-choice questions, because I'm I'm in a second-year course, they still need to know things and know these definitions for what finalization is. Um, But they also need to be able to create these links. And what do these subjects uh, have to do with each other? And that's not in the book. They actually have to pay attention during the lectures and have to think for themselves what these kind of things have to do with each other. And... The way they answer the question is, uh, can also be very personal because you can do it from a definition perspective. Definition A is this, definition B is this, and that means that they have this and this together. But it could also be like an example from practice that they've had or something they've experienced themselves. That's all okay. As long as there's a coherent rationale in the answer, I'm fine with that because that's what we're trying to teach our students. How do you get inspiration for your teaching, or how do you
0: develop your teaching practices? How do you you mentioned, Danny, that you know you came um, uh, part of the rationale for the structure that you have was inspired from previous experiences that you had uh, in other places as a student. In this case, Um, how do you? Where does this all come? for you do you do you read a lot do you try to stay in touch with educational innovations do you listen to educational podcasts um (laughs) do you talk to your colleagues do you just um sit down and uh open a bottle of wine and think and try to come up with your own things where does this all come from
2: yeah all of that Hmm. um but mostly from, from, like, also frustrations when I was a student. So taking the, exa- the bad examples of, of things I had back then. Uh, so one of the things that a teacher then told me was, you don't need to know that for the exam. And I remember getting really angry as a student, and I'm still getting angry when I, whenever I hear that, and that was the answer.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I, still, I also get a bit angry with the question, do we need to know that for the exam? But I can get it because there's a lot depending on passing that exam whenever a student asks just a question and it's not even relevant for the exam, I think you as a teacher should answer that question or at least try to. Um, And that's one of the things I always do. If if it's not part of the material, I usually don't have it uh, just uh, by hand. So I record like a separate lecture of 15 minutes on that particular topic because somebody uh, just found it interesting and then it's like out there for everybody. Mm. And I think that's... But that, for me, it's always uh, the the personal stuff um, that really gets across the best. And for me, it's also thinking about how can I present this in the most effective manner, not just talking about something, but having people experience that. So uh, one of the parts I do in neuropsychology and developmental psychology is on working memory and working memory load. So what I often do is then overload them on purpose, just put too much information in there, mm. and then stop the whole lecture, and it's like, what did you just experience? Did you even get like the last two minutes because I rushed on purpose mm-hmm. and put too much information on that slide on purpose? So I really have them experience all the things I do um, during a lecture. Mm.
1: Yeah, so I, I read a lot about teaching. Um, I talk to my colleagues, but I think that it is important to go beyond your own department, Um, and I I really enjoyed this conversation. to have other people that I normally don't talk to talk about um, education. Um, And last year, I discovered this new thing that's called the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. don't know if you're familiar with it, Um, but that was, for me, very inspiring. I went to a conference in Canada, and there's all these people that work in higher education, and the thing that they have in common is that they're very passionate about teaching and about researching their teaching as well but they come from all different fields. So there may be biologists and chemists there, but also psychologists and um, all kinds of people. And they engage in, in, in very um, uh, passionate discussions about their teaching and the learning of their students and investigating it. So I think that that is something that here at our, our faculty, we could be doing more, I think, because we say that, that we have a good practice or that something works well but are, are we really certain that it works well and that it benefits our, the learning of our students? Um, or do we just think so and don't really have any good evidence for it? Um, I think that that is also a source of inspiration for me.
0: Actually, uh, this was uh, one of the questions that we had prepared uh, for you both, whether you engage in, uh, in educational scholarship. Uh, Denise, you already mentioned this. Danny, do you, um, in your own
2: practice... Yeah, I had one a couple of years ago uh, and it gave a couple of students assistance that, that then we could actually expand on everything that w- I usually do um, usually I don't have those student assistants so then no. it's just what I can do with within my time but that really gave some leeway into doing a m- lot more experimental stuff but also being more available for students so maybe we can we can spend a, a couple of minutes on
0: this this has been, I've, I've been I'll call it ambivalent, about how much to engage in educational scholarship, partly because I know it's very difficult, partly because I fear that sometimes it will interfere with my primary task, which is to be an effective teacher in my classroom. And the act of studying, the learning and the teaching will interfere with the act of, teaching and learning uh, can you allay my fears perhaps denise or or, <laughs> or or confirm them
1: i think it's part of good teaching to investigate your the, the results of your teaching with your students so for me it's a it, it does feel like a very natural thing to do to research what you're doing in your classroom and you don't have to write a paper about it you can also share it in other ways so one of the things of Scholarship of teaching and learning is the sharing within a community and it can be a very small community like you're doing here in your podcast. I think that's a an example of scholarship of teaching and learning. Um, you're engaging students. That's also uh, one of the aspects of the scholarship of teaching and learning. So it can be small and you can make it very big where you do these huge studies on cohorts of students over many years and see how their learning improves if you do a, a certain type of intervention, but can also also be a s- very small thing. So I think that you shouldn't be afraid. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you should embrace it. Okay. <laughs> and
0: uh, do you have any advice for uh, a hypothetical teacher in higher education <laughs> who wants to, to dip <laughs> their toes into educational scholarship on how to begin? You talked about conferences. Yeah. Do you have some to recommend about yes.
1: them? Yes. There's... Um, the, the bad thing is that the deadline for submissions was last Wednesday, but you we can still attend. The International scholarship for, uh, the international Society for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning has a large conference, and coming year it's in Utrecht, at Utrecht University. Um, and I think that's a very good place to, to get inspiration, um, so people from all over the world come and attend um, and present their studies or their, their small-scale projects as well. I think that is a good place to start. And they publish a, a journal as well. Um,
0: and is there a, g- um, a, a good way that we could stimulate this, um, this kind of scholarship within our faculty, let's say, yeah. or within the university? I've
1: been thinking about that. And I think it's um, for us as just humble educators in our, um, in our faculty, maybe difficult to start this from the bottom up. I tried at our department. Um but it seems like yeah people are so so they, they have so much work to do, the the um, pressure is high on them. So to do this additional thing, that, that's what it feels like, like it's extra, um, that's apparently difficult. But I th- so I think that maybe instead of a um, best practice award, uh, where we had the little ceremony where very few people showed up, um, we should have a larger thing where people present their, their small-scale projects and try to inspire each other and just share their practices. And we don't have to label them as good or best practices, but maybe share their practices of teaching and the questions that they may have or struggle with so that you get these conversations about what people um, find works really well or are very enthusiastic about and what they struggle with uh, so that we can actually interact with each other about them.
0: I have a lot of follow. I've been frantically taking notes as you've been talking uh, about this, but maybe uh, I'll leave this for another conversation. Maybe we can talk about this idea of stimulating um, scholarships within uh, scholarship within our faculty a little bit more. And uh, I I certainly share this value of um, speaking with one another outside the context of awards or best practices, simply sharing practices and experiences. I think this is really the the whole point of this podcast also, mm-hmm. to find a platform to share these experiences and these practices, not as being exemplary, but simply being what we do within the context that we're operating.
2: that yeah, you get an idea of, of, of showcases of what you might be able to do? Because w- what you did, Denise, uh, actually hadn't thought about using that in the classroom might might do that actually for one of the neuropsychology parts of, mm-hmm. of my lecture, actually having them engage in something like that, but just having an oversight of what k- types of, 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 of methods are available, unique ideas are available, and maybe even then the next step would be then trying to show that they are effective for yeah. not just your course, you as a teacher, but for multiple courses. Did you get like, uh, I've used this as well, so I'm, I'm giving like a review on that showcase of works excellently.
0: And perhaps also to reinforce what Denise was saying earlier and where it doesn't work, because Mm -hmm. this is also important. It's important to know that uh, certain practices work for context, for people, for group sizes, for times. I know for myself that things that I was doing five years ago, they just don't stick anymore. What has changed? I don't know. It could be that I have changed. It could be that post-COVID education attitudes are also slightly Mm -hmm. different. It could be all the context around my course that is changed and therefore these activities don't stick. But I recognize that some things that used to work or work in some ways no longer do and I have to find ways to to change them. I think these discussions are really the most important thing in education because finding these objective methods that generalize in multiple situations and in multiple courses also feels like it lacks humanity in a way. And, um, I think this is another theme that is very important for all of this. You talked about the presentations in the teaching <laughs> awards. I remember having this for, for, uh, uh, a couple of weeks, uh, in preparation, I was trying to think about how to approach this and, uh, Actually, one of the reasons why I really didn't want to prepare anything for these, first, because I knew it didn't matter for the decision, which was important because I didn't want to um, suggest that I didn't care about it, because I do. Uh, but mostly because the things that I find useful in the things that I do in my teaching is the values that we bring in, the, these aspects of communication, of being, uh, speaking with our students on a, on a relentlessly continuous basis... Um, reflecting on this and being flexible and giving uh, students options didn't seem like something I wanted to share in a presentation where I say, well, this is the practice and this is step one and this is step two. I really simply wanted to share an experience that I had in developing a course and going through it, sometimes unscathed, most of the time slightly torn up, um, and celebrate that aspect, the fact that this is what that experience reflects and to perhaps contrast this with the idea of a best practice, Mm -hmm. which I find deeply uncomfortable.
3: Yeah, so I wanted to talk or ask both of you a bit about um, what you think um, can you know for yourself or for others in terms of um, your development or others' developments um, within higher education uh, in terms of best practices or good practices as you you go on college, Denise. yeah, any ideas you have on uh, in those terms in, in the future of, of, of this development?
1: I think what I would like to see uh, change in our context is the, the focus on, um, on qualification and on assessment of our students. Mm. So we have to describe these learning outcomes, learning objectives, and um, design our classes, uh, our courses um, leading to those, which is, of course, natural. But there's so much more that we want to... Teach our students um, in the form of becoming critical thinkers and um, uh, making them talk to each other about difficult topics and about big ideas and about um, their vision on teaching biology. Um, And those are things that I think cannot be easily cannot easily be assessed in these in these report written reports or in uh, learning outcomes. You, You cannot describe those extra things that we want to give them. And I would really like to have more freedom to um, do those things as well. And I think that, that that is one of the bigger goals of higher education and of um, e- um, educating uh, academic teachers as well, because that's what they should be doing with their students as well. Um, education is not just about meeting the qualifications or getting a qualification, but it's also be- about your development as a person and as a, as a citizen, as part of society. And I think you cannot get all of those in these learning objectives. Um, so I would like more freedom in my courses to do other things that are not being assessed. Yeah, that's that's the main thing I think.
3: I was going. Sorry, I was going to ask because I've spoken to um, a few PhD students as well as well as teachers, and something we often discuss is is the workload already too much? Mm-hmm. Like, and we and that some teachers or professionals within the the university may feel like they have enough to do and going off even though they might want to like do more or be more flexible in what they have to do they wonder if it's possible given the situation yeah so i guess it's different for everyone of course but do you ever feel like that's good enough of a reason to to not keep looking to see where you can change in terms of your teaching or just your general um yeah, professionalism here at the university. I find that a very interesting gray area because I understand if you have so many ob- obligations, it's ar- it's kind of hard then maybe to sometimes be a bit flexible right. for some. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I understand that people feel that way. Mm. Um, for me, that's that not um, that's not a reason not to try to be flexible and try to change things. But I do also see it with my students that they experience a very high workload, and I think we should... We We should do something for our students as well to feel more freedom and room to um, develop as a person or as a teacher, uh, in the case of my students. Mm. And we're not giving them that space because we're trying to get everything organized and um, have all these rules and regulations that we all have to stick to. And um, I think that that is not um, benefiting the students. Mm,
3: I understand. Yeah. And if I ask the same question to you, Dani?
2: yeah for, uh, for me it's it, it
3: i hope students and
2: phd students and colleagues come with questions whenever they have them uh, because i think that as a good teacher you should make time for that i think that as an educator that's the most important thing uh, no all goes back to to when i was a student i asked questions that i really thought that that i wanted to know them and they weren't part of the lectures and that gave like a a rapport between me and the teacher and and other students that went beyond what you needed to know for the exam. And we often had discussions after hours, like between four and six with teachers uh, sitting in a group. And I haven't seen that happen here. And that is something that I do miss from my educational time. But back then, maybe time wasn't that much of an issue actually don't know i should ask my teachers back then whether or not they had were swamped and just did it because they wanted to and for myself if i look at at the perspective of where do i want to go uh, i think it's important that you're part of the system Uh, so i want to be a better teacher but in order to be a better teacher you need to be in those kind of committees um, that 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 actually organize the education around you and create possibilities and try to change the systems instead of complaining about the systems, actually trying to change the system. So I've been in admissions, I've been coordinating, uh, I've been the coordinator of the Master of Educational Sciences, and now in in the exam board, I think it's very important to be part of those systems in order to try to change things in a a more broader way, not just for your particular course, but. Create more clarity and options within these uh, these committees.
3: Hmm. Yeah, and I was also thinking because uh, I also have this dis- often have this discussion with um, uh, not classmates but study mates, I guess, on that because some people they, they feel very comfortable asking questions during the lecture or after the lecture, but others they might think of the questions later. Mm-hmm. And then they might want to email the teacher, but then connecting it back to what we were just discussing, some teachers are so swamped because they have to like help, I don't know, seven bachelor students with their thesis, maybe a lot more master students, and then they might not even get to the email. So then those questions are then not answered. And then you can't really blame the teacher necessarily, I at least I think so, because they're human as well. And it's like, okay, well, how, how do you then go about the feedback of that student? Because then... I guess they're almost forced to go outside of themselves and, and then ask the questions during the lecture. So then that's why I kind of was also interested in asking that question because sometimes I think even when we are open to it, we might not, I, I can imagine that some teachers don't even have, <laughs> they might not get to it based on their own situation. So how do we kind of not solve, but maybe work on improving that part of it where we're also more accepting of different kinds of students when they might have feedback, but maybe not in the traditional mm-hmm. sense of, let me ask you it directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So that's just something I was, this, was thinking of. Um.
1: Yeah, I think the exit tickets that we mentioned earlier yeah. are a good way to do that, uh, where everybody just gets to write down their uh, feedback. Mm-hmm. And you can also do that an- anonymously if you want to. So if you don't want to add your name, you can... Denise, can you
0: very, very quickly describe to listeners who don't know what exit tickets are? What they are, what their yeah. purpose is, and how they can incorporate them in their teaching in practical ways?
1: Sure. It's a, uh, it, an exit ticket is, is something that students fill out at the end of a lecture. Um, and you ask them one, two, or three questions um, about what they actually learned. So you don't ask them, what did you learn this lecture? But more often you, se- you ask them a specific question about the content. Um, and I always ask them if they need anything from me to be able to complete a task. Um, so that I know how I can help them. And I think that really helps the type of student that you, d- you mm. just d- described. Because they, it, it may be difficult for them to, s- to send an email as well. Um, and they will not even do that. Um, but if everybody sits down in class and writes a question on an exit ticket. Then it's um, much easier for them to do that too. Um, and I always make sure that I read them s- right after class. Um, and then I immediately do something with it if it's needed. For example... The last exit ticket I used, uh, someone asked for good examples, um, and I already had the good examples of the, of the assessment ready, but I always wait for someone to ask for uh, the examples to um, before I share them with them.
3: Mm. Um, can you also give them in after the lecture? Like, let's say someone wants to reflect on it, mm-hmm. uh, on their answer, and then give you the ticket. It's a physical ticket. Yeah, you, it's yeah. A it's a physical
1: you can do a digital ticket oh, as okay. well. There's different mm. ways. It doesn't really matter how you do mm. this.
3: But you can technically also give them in after the lecture to the teacher. If yeah. Okay. So they're
0: exit tickets because they happen at the exit yeah. of, yeah. A, of yeah. a class. So uh, students often will... I, I often give these tickets at some point within the last half hour of a, of a class uh, so that they have them available or even at the very beginning and I give them the questions from uh, the beginning... And students can fill them out whenever they feel like it. And at the moment where they leave, they just put them in a, in a figurative hat. Mm-hmm. And I also do exit tickets slightly later electronically through um, Brightspace, through my weekly quizzes, yeah. where I give students the opportunity to ask me questions or um, give comments or feedback on anything they want those are kind of a sort of slightly long-term exit ticket.
1: So tell us, how does it feel for you to, um, if you get the exit t- tickets either on paper or online? Uh, what I always feel is like, oh, I, I hope that they uh, will not be very negative in their feedback or on their c- comments. So it, it, for some teachers, many teachers might probably feel like this. How does it feel for you?
0: So this is a very good question. I'm, I, I love... L- Reading comments, um, I've uh, I've grown accustomed to reading all kinds of flavors of comments, including the the critical ones. the The thing that makes me uncomfortable about critical ones is that when I see truth in them, and when I see them frequently, then it's um, it's of course an uncomfortable position to be in because you recognize that you're doing something poorly. But I, on good weeks, when I have the, the 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 space, the mental space, the emotional space, and the actual literal time and space to to uh, go through this journey of self-reflection, I find these to be the most valuable experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, my the the responses I get in my exit tickets tend to be of let's say three flavors I might come up with a fourth one as I'm recounting them one is to ask questions I didn't understand this would you mind explaining this further those are very useful for me because I, I suddenly have direct purpose or very clear purpose in my teaching I can explain something that needs explaining very useful uh, the second one is critical this is difficult for me this was did d- this part didn't work for me this um, yeah something I need to change And the third one and the one that I find perhaps even more valuable for myself is to understand uh, student experiences. So they are descriptions of students' experiences where they say this was the most interesting aspect or I found this very difficult but I managed or um, this week uh, I didn't have a lot of time so I didn't read any of the extra materials, all Mm -hmm. of this, because it puts me in touch with um, the, the humanity of the learners who are who are taking my courses because I can come up with what I think is a beautiful course and how uh, something that should work for somebody, but in the end, I have no idea how these 300 people are going to experience these things differently. So these are the kind of things and all of them are valuable. Some are easier to process, some less so. The critical comments on the face of them are the ones that are most difficult to process because they can appear to be Attacks, let's call them, to, to your own uh, qualities, to your own abilities, to your own skills, and perhaps even when you look at it from a, um, from a certain perspective to yourself as a person, but they are also one of the most useful types of things, yeah. uh, uh, types of comments that you can receive. And it's also very difficult and maybe to, to think about uh, how to do evaluations and maybe advice to students on how to do this, there's a there's a difference between commenting on a, on uh, on, a, on a practice and commenting on an experience, and of course talking about a person. These are all ways that you can reflect on your own experience and comment on this experience to other people, and I think those are also diffi- uh, different in the way that you you phrase them. Mm-hmm. But they're always. Uh, they're always an experience i can tell you this reading yeah. all these comments and um it's it's always an experience
2: but uh, but then getting back to the question malcolm asked <laughs> you have to yeah if you want to improve mm. your practice your your teaching practice or whatever practice you have to take the time to read the feedback or uh, create moments to get that feedback yeah. and of course if you're swamped then there's no pos- possibility but then it doesn't improve mm. yeah
3: but then I wonder if the issue is the teacher or the system. Like this, sometimes it's
1: system, of course. <laughs>
3: <laughs> hey, didn't want to say, it, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because then, yeah, then because then I think e- something then has to change to allow the te- make it a little easier for the teachers to be able to do so. And of course, they also have to do their best to you know improve themselves.
1: Yeah, but I think for many people, there's there's this um, this uncomfortable feeling about asking students at the end of class how they mm. liked the class or what they learned or what could could be improved but I think it's important that it's it's not about you as a teacher or as a person although the comments can be about you but you're trying to as a teacher you're trying to learn something about your students so the comments mm. are mostly about themselves and their learning um, and that can help you in improving mm. your teaching um,
2: yeah. And and it's also a bit a, a long term perspective. Yeah. Of course, you don't need to ask these kind of things, but then things won't improve. So, in one of the courses that that I wasn't involved with yet, but apparently they didn't change anything for five years, and they had the same problems for five years. But each time the 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 Ocasus came around and they needed to change things, then it was yeah. But we're too swamped now, so we'll mm-hmm. leave it as it is. Knowing full well that they would have the same problems. So sometimes you need to invest a bit more time now mm. in order to avoid all the problems in the future. I feel like this is a good
0: discussion that I, I I in fact, Malcolm, I think for our notes we should devote an entire episode on this topic of evaluations, how to give good evaluations, how to reflect on evaluations well, how to have these conversations with students and with each other. Um, and indeed talk a lot more about this, um, these bottlenecks of uh, finding time, finding the right kind of time in the year. Indeed, when uh, Ocas is our system where we have to um, put uh, or make our plans for the following year concrete always arrives extremely <laughs> early. I, I have a feeling that we're currently in the process of having to do this, and I think I have forgotten to, yeah. so I'm probably going yesterday, to receive it. Yeah. <laughs> r- yeah, see, there you go. Um, But what I wanted to do is I wanted to thank you both for joining us today. The conversation um, has been enlightening uh, uh, for me and um, uh, I've very much enjoyed it. Um, It's always a really big privilege and um, um, a rewarding experience. Actually, it's an experience that makes me feel more comfortable about going back to my office to prepare for my teaching again every time I talk to other people who are similarly engaged uh, in their education, whether they be learners or or teachers. And, uh, again, this is um, really what we're trying to achieve with this podcast, to remind people um, that these are sh- shared problems, these are shared hopes, these are shared aspirations, and possibly even shared practices. So thank you both. Thank You're you. You're welcome. <laughs> and... Thank you to our listeners for um, uh, hanging in there with us for one more episode. Next time we return with celebrating two more teachers uh, from the faculty um, who've been nominated for this award for best teaching and uh, learning practice. So thank you. This podcast was a production of the University of Groningen.